Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service this evening, and we're glad that you're that you're here. And um, I want to let you know that we will be concluding the service with uh, communion, and uh, so that's how we we typically conclude our Good Friday service. Tonight, we will be exploring the meaning of the cross, and uh, we will kind of go through different aspects of that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And when we look at the life of Christ, we see that um, in his life, he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he encouraged the brokenhearted, he loved the sinner. And, and when we look at the life of Christ, we understand that Jesus did tell us that his primary purpose in coming to this earth was to suffer and to die. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 28. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus had his eyes set on the cross. He knew that he had come to die. So what I want to do with you tonight is take a look at the cross, not just look at it, but what did the cross accomplish? You see, I'm convinced that we really do not understand that much about the cross. So let me be forthright with you tonight that we will uh, be looking at a detailed look. We will take um, a good amount of time looking at the cross and what it means and what actually took place on the cross. Before we get started with that and looking at the history of the cross, we're going to sing hymn number 156. Were you there? Please stand. <laughs> Yeah. 
We want to start tonight by looking at the history of the crucifixion. The crucifixion was invented by the Persians in 500 B.C. and it was perfected by the Romans in the day of Jesus. It was not outlawed until the time of Emperor Constantine who ruled Rome in the 4th century A.D. When Jesus lived, the crucifixion was reserved for the most horrendous criminals that were around. Even the worst Romans were beheaded rather than to be crucified. The Jews considered the crucifixion the most horrible of deaths. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 through 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime perishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. Josephus was an ancient Jewish historian, historian, and he called the crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, German soldiers crucified Jews at Dachau. They would run their bayonets through people and impale them and then nail them to the sides of barns. Under the leadership of Pol Pot, people were crucified in Cambodia. And even recently, people are crucified in Sudan, Syria, and even Saudi Arabia. The pain of crucifixion is horrible. It was so horrible that there's a word that was invented to explain it which is excruciating, it literally means from the cross. A crucified person could hang on the cross for days. They'd pass in and out of consciousness. Their lungs struggled to breathe, and they would labor under the weight of their body. What made death by crucifixion so excruciatingly painful is that it was a very slow, arduous death by asphyxiation. The medical professionals tell us that when someone is crucified, their body weight essentially causes them to slump and slouch. The result being they strain to fill up their lungs with air and they slowly suffocate to death as they choke on their own blood, vomit, sweat, and tears. They start choking and their lungs are straining to gather air to inhale in and to exhale out. This would mean that someone could remain on the cross in that pain for days. They'd bake in the hot sun during the day. They would freeze in the cool at night. Their body would be dehydrated and traumatized as it strained to breathe, losing great, amount, great amounts of blood and sweating as the body would be in shock. And so what would happen is that when men wanted to die, they would put an end to their agony and their disgrace and their shame. They would intentionally slouch on the cross, causing them to lose their breath, and they would speed up their death. And so to ensure their cruelty continued for as long as possible, to keep this from happening, the sadists of the day wanted to inflict as much suffering as they could, so they would build a seat and they would nail it to the cross under the man's buttocks so that he would be forced to remain upright and suffer for as long as possible. This is the history of the crucifixion. What about Jesus? What about Jesus' crucifixion? What about Jesus on the cross? In the days of Roman rule to ensure that the maximum amount of suffering and uh, was inflicted on the person, they would always scourge before the crucifixion. The scourging itself was 
painful. It was so painful that many men would die from it without even making it to the cross. Jesus' back and legs would be exposed to what was called an executioner's whip, cat, uh, called a cat and nine tails. This whip was a series of long leather straps, and at the end of these straps were heavy balls of metal or knuckle bones or some type, sometimes wire intended to tenderize the body of the victim. Some of the straps had hooks made of either metal or bone that would have sunk deeply into the shoulders and the back and the buttocks and the legs, and once the hooks had sunk deeply into the flesh, the executioner would whip that whip back and skin and muscle and tendons and even bones would fall off the victim as they shouted in agony and shook violently and bled heavenly. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah predicted the results of Jesus' scourging when he said this in Isaiah 52:14. As many were as astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus then had a crown of lengthy thorns that was pressed on his head as onlookers mocked him as the king of the Jews. And with that, the blood began to flow down his face, causing his hair and his beard to be bloodied and matted and a mess. And his eyes would be burning as he strained to see through his own sweat and blood. And Jesus' robe was then used in a gambling game. And after all this, Jesus was then forced to carry his rough wooded crossbar of around 100 pounds on his bare, traumatized, bloody back and shoulders to the place where he would eventually be crucified. This cross was already likely covered with the blood of other men because timber was expensive. They would recycle crosses. And even though Jesus was young and he was in good health, he was physically devastated from the sleepless night, the miles of walking, the severe beating, and finally the scourging that he collapsed under the weight of that cross. He couldn't carry it anymore. A man named Simon, the Cyrene, was appointed to carry Jesus' cross. Upon arriving at the place of the crucifixion, they pulled his beard out, which is an act of ultimate disrespect in the ancient culture. They spat on him, and they mocked him in front of everyone. Jesus, the carpenter, who had driven many nails into wood with his own hands, then had five to seven inch rough metal spikes driven into the most sensitive nerve endings on the human body his hands and his feet. He was nailed to his wooden cross. At this point, Jesus was in unbearable agony. He was then lifted up and dropped, the cross dropped into a prepared hole, causing his body to shake violently on the spikes. And further mockery, a sign was posted above Jesus that said this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. At this point in the crucifixion, the victims would labor to breathe as their body went into shock. They were naked. They were embarrassed. The victims would often use their remaining strength to seek revenge on the crowd of mockers who had gathered to torment them. They would curse at those tormenting them. They would spit on them. They'd even try to urinate on them. At the foot of the cross would be a pool of blood and sweat and feces and urine. The crucifixion of Jesus must have been a grotesque scene. 
hundreds of years in advance, the prophet Isaiah saw it this way in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. None of this was done in privacy. It was all done in an open public place. It would be like nailing a bloody naked man above the front entrance of a grocery store. Not only was the crucifixion excruciatingly painful and publicly shameful, but it was commonly practiced. Tens of thousands of people were crucified in the ancient world. And on this day, two men were crucified with Jesus on each side of him. Years later, it is reported that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, was crucified but did not consider himself worthy to die the same death for Jesus. And so he requested to be crucified upside down. Will we now sing hymn number 144, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? and speak to the popularity of the cross. As we think of the cross, we must understand that the cross is part of the gospel, and the gospel is what we call good news. And so in reality, we are saying that this thing, which is terrible that we just described in terrible detail, is somehow good news. There are many opinions of Jesus' death by crucifixion, 
The cross is featured in secular music oftentimes as we listen to it, and we see it on television. It's in movies. It's worn by athletes and actors alike. Why do we have such a fascination with the cross? Gandhi said that his death on the cross, speaking of Jesus, was a great example to the world. But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Mark Twain said that Jesus died to save men, a small thing for an immortal to do, and didn't save many anyway. But if he had been damned for the race, that would have been an act of a size proper to a god and would have saved the whole race. In 1892, there was a Supreme Court decision that declared Jesus the Redeemer of mankind. The Puritan John Owen said, There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Think about this. The cross, which represents Jesus' death, his torture, has become the most famous and popular symbol in all of history. Beginning with the early church father named Tertullian, early Christians would make the sign of the cross over their bodies with their hand. They would also hang crosses around their necks and on the walls of their homes to celebrate the brutal death of Jesus. We see crosses every day. We see them sometimes on highways. We see them on churches. We see them on buildings. We see it all through pop culture from some of the vilest and godless people around. We see them wear them. We see people kiss the cross. The cross has become a fashion statement for many. Well, what is it to us? What is the cross? How can we as Christians possibly celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus as good news? And to do that with you tonight to see what is the cross, I want to move past the history. I want to move past the popularity. And I want to look at the theology of the cross. And to understand the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross, which is also known by the word we throw around in Christian circles called the atonement, it must be connected to things like God's character and God's creation and human sin and the response of God to sin and sinners. And to do this, I'm going to briefly look at seven truths that are essential to understanding the cross. First truth, truth number one, is this. God is holy. We cannot understand the cross without knowing that God is holy and without sin. The Bible tells us that God is holy without sin and only altogether good. In fact, the holiness of God is the most mentioned attribute of God in the entire Bible. Truth number two, God originally made us holy and without sin. So at the beginning of creation, God made us holy. Not only is God good, but everything God made was originally good and holy, including us who were made in His image and likeness. Truth number three, sin results in death. Sin is us separating ourselves from God. Because God is the living God and the source of all life, sin results in death. The Bible says that because of sin, we are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. In addition to this, we will all die physically, just as God promised our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve. Truth number four, Jesus is sinless. 
One of the things that makes Jesus distinct from and morally superior to everyone who has or will ever live is that he alone is without sin. He said this about himself, and it's confirmed in additional scripture. Jesus had no sin in his life. Truth number five, we are sinful. We are sinful. Despite the fact that God made us sinless, everyone but Jesus is a sinner. We're a sinner by our nature, and we're a sinner by choice. Our sins include our words, our deeds, our thoughts, and our motives. Our sin also includes something called sin of omission, which is not doing what God commands us to do, and sin of commission, which is doing what God forbids. Even non-Christians agree that everyone is sinful, and they agree with Scripture when they say this, nobody is perfect, because we are all sinners. Truth number six, Jesus became our sin. Jesus became our sin. That statement is shocking. It should be shocking. On the cross, as our substitute, Jesus made the absolute worst that we are. He was made the absolute worst that we are. This does not mean that Jesus sinned. Rather, it means that he was made sin. As a result, in that moment, when Jesus cried out that he had been forsaken by God the Father, Jesus became like the most ugly, wicked, defiled, evil, corrupt, rebellious, hideous thing in all of creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther tells us that Jesus exchanged His perfection for our imperfection, His obedience for our disobedience, His intimacy with God the Father for our distance from God the Father, His blessing for our cursing, and His life for our death. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus became our sin. He didn't just become like our sin. He became our sin. Truth number seven. Jesus died for us. The fact that as Christians we celebrate the murder of Jesus as good news is disgusting. Unless we understand why. It's hideous. We celebrate this man being slaughtered on a cross. Unless we understand why. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died for his own. Died for us. The word for has big implications. When we say that Jesus died for us, we use this theological term to describe it. It's called substitutionary atonement. What we are saying is that the death, that his death was in our place and was solely for our benefit and not his. Just to be perfectly clear, this means that Jesus took the penalty for our sins in our place so that we don't have to suffer the penalty for our sins ourselves. The wrath of God that should have been on you and on me. His death that should have fallen on us went to Him. It was not forced on Him. He took it willingly. And we have this huge theological term that we call this. It's called 
penal substitutionary atonement. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53.12 says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because of his death. And because death is a penalty for sinners, the only way that the death of the sinless Jesus can be understood is in the terms of the substitution. The sinless Jesus literally stood in our place to suffer and to die for us. In doing this, Jesus is our Savior who alone can take away the curse that we deserve. Some people might say, well, well how could a loving God possibly pour out His wrath on his own son. Yet this is exactly what scripture tells us. In Isaiah 53.10. It pleased the Lord. To crush him. It pleased the Lord. To crush him. Some people might say. Well how could a loving God sanction the murder of Jesus. Yet the Bible plainly states. That at the cross of Jesus. The love of God. For us is most clearly seen. Jesus himself said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Think of John 3.16. It is at the cross that the love of Christ is displayed the most. Have you ever read the Bible and noticed that it's filled with blood? The Old Testament often used that theme of blood to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus who would die for the sins of the people, one of the central events in the Old Testament is the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. It was the most important day of the year. If you've been here as we've walked through the book of Hebrews, we've talked about this a lot. It was intended to deal with the problem of sin between humanity and God. Let me explain to you one event that would happen on that day. Two healthy goats without any defect were chosen. These goats were fit to represent the sinless perfection. The high priest would take and slaughter one goat, which acted as a substitute for sinners who rightly deserved a violent and bloody death for their sins. And the high priest treated the uh, first goat as a sin offering. He slaughtered that innocent goat and he sprinkled some of the blood on the mercy seat and, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant and inside the most holy place. And, and blood was sprinkled everywhere and on everything. The goat is no longer innocent when it takes on the guilt of our sin because it's a sin offering. The blood of that goat represents life given as a payment for the sins. The result is that the dwelling place of God is cleansed of the defilement and that resulted from all the transgressions and the sins of the people of Israel. And God's wrath is satisfied for that moment. The bloody slaughter of the goat on the Day of Atonement represents this big word called propitiation. 
It means that God's wrath, which is mentioned over 600 times in the scripture, is satisfied or propitiated for sinners and averted to Jesus Christ. This is made possible because Jesus substituted himself in our place. The high priest would then take that second goat and he would lay his hands on that animal while confessing the sins of the people. This goat, by the way, was called the scapegoat. That goat would then be sent away to run free into the wilderness, away from the sinner, symbolically taking the sins of the person with it. We have a big word for this as well. It's called expiation, whereby the sin is expiated or taken away so that we are made clean. Now here is the thing. Jesus Christ has come. And he has fulfilled all of these sacrifices. He fulfills the spotless goat, which is sacrifice. He fulfills the scapegoat. He is both our substitution and our scapegoat. So we can live new lives of freedom and joy. Today, the message of the cross is seen as foolishness and offensive, just as Paul had predicted it would be. Here's the sad part of the cross. Christians have have hidden. We rarely hear anyone preach about the cross. We rarely hear what the true meaning of the cross is about because of this people think that being a Christian is all about avoiding pain and avoiding hurt and avoiding suffering and avoiding the horrors of this life. And and that's what being a Christian must be all about. Many people think that living the Christian life is about living some sort of life in a little Ziploc Christian plastic bag where we sing nice, cool little worship songs and we prom date Jesus so we don't have to pick up a cross and shed any tears and follow after Christ and go through pain and go through suffering and go through hurt. But that's not the Christian life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is hard. It's not easy. It's difficult to live for Christ. Jesus says, take up your cross and die. Not die literally, but we're asked to die to the world. He died on that cross so that we would die to sin. To show us an example of what the Christian life is about. And in our age of Christian gimmicks and little tricks, promises that say, hey, you can have a victorious life without pain and without death, Jesus gives the invitation to come and die. That doesn't sell a lot of books. That's not popular to say. But it does help to ensure that we continue to walk with Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Here's the deal. We can say, well, why, why talk about the cross? Why would you spend so much time on the theology of the cross? Well, To be a Christian means to be a little Christ. That's what it means. That's literally what the term means. In fact, the the name Christian was originally a term of mockery. It was meant to make fun of people. So it was was used like, oh, you're a Christian. Ha! You're a little Jesus. You're a little Christ. Made up by the enemies of those who follow Christ. But Jesus said, 
that if you want to be a Christian, you must pick up your cross and die. You must die to sin. You must die to pride. You must die to comfort. You die to anything and everything that fails to glorify God in your life. You say, my life is a glorification of God and what I say and what I do. He's the object of my affection. He's the source of my joy. It's all about Him. It's all about glorifying Him in my life. And so we gather together on a Good Friday, on the day that Jesus Christ was bloodied and crucified for the sins of mankind to secure our atonement, to be our sacrifice. We gather today, we gather tonight because it is good news. Because we put to death sin in our lives as a result of following Christ. Jesus paid this incredible price. The ultimate question is, for what? For what? So we could pretend? So we could fake it? Or so that we would put to death sin, follow after Him, and glorify Him in our lives, recognizing that though He died on that cross, He rose to live again. Let's prepare to sing hymn number 141, The Old Rugged Cross. Yeah.
stained with blood so divine, such a wonderful beauty I see. What was on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died, to burden and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross Thank you.